right, good morning. We are jumping back into our series in James. We continue on after an incredibly power, powerful message last week by Andrew. I so appreciated um, him preaching. That, that hard section in James 2 on faith and works and, and uh, the demonstration of our faith through those works and tying that to Ephesians 2, and what a great time and encouragement that was. And uh, this morning, we're looking specifically at the aspect of a self-controlled faith. As we talk about a faith that works, a self-controlled faith. And we're diving into James chapter 3. And I invite you to turn there this morning. And I just say quickly that uh, if if you don't have a a Bible with you, I invite you to do that, whether it's on an app or a a hard copy, just to bring that and have it in your hands to hold it. Um, If you don't have a copy, we would be happy to get you a copy. Just let us know. But there's just something about putting that in your heart and having it to interact with. And so uh, James chapter 3, as you read through this letter in the first century, uh, in, in this, this letter from James, the brother of Jesus, we can easily get into to reading this letter with, with a bent towards seeing this kind of as an inventory, a, a checklist, a spiritual checklist, if you will. Um, do this. Don't do this. Avoid this. Embrace this. Be sure to do this. And we can, we can see it almost as this segregated, kind of uh, separated out. But, but Andrew pointed out something so helpful last week as he preached on the last half of chapter 2 that there's a thread that runs throughout this, this letter and this book tying it all together. And it's not a segregated list of unrelated things to do. And my hope this morning is that you come away understanding three things. One, that this letter isn't a checklist of to-do, to-do items, but it's a unified compendium on how to grow to maturity in Christ. Secondly, that Jesus is our model in this pursuit of maturity, especially as it relates to our speech. And thirdly, what we're going to look at is, is the outworking of this pursuit, that it's a continuation of what we saw last week, a demonstration of our faith. And the only way to achieve these things and work these things out is through cultivating intimacy with God, with Christ in our life. The intimacy is key to all of this. So with that, let's read our passage in James. James chapter 3, starting in verse 1, 1 through 12. James 3 says, Not many should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we, we will receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's mature, able also to control the whole body. Now, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we direct their whole bodies. And consider ships, though very large and driven by fierce winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So too, though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things." Consider how a small fire sets ablaze a large forest, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among our members. It stains the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and fish is tamed and has been tamed by humankind, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in God's likeness. Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree produce olives? My brothers and sisters, 
or a grapevine produce figs. Neither can a salt water spring yield fresh water. Thanks be to God for uh, his word this morning. In reading through this letter, I have been struck by how related James is to what we've already heard a bit of this morning, the Sermon on the Mount. Thank you for that, Andrew. You, uh, you didn't know, but you were setting up our sermon this morning. And the Sermon on the Mount was the most detailed sermon that we have of Jesus' teachings. Uh, you find it both in Matthew and in Luke, Matthew 5, 6, and parts of 7. And, and uh, I, it, it's amazing that there Jesus presents revolutionary teaching to his day that, that flipped how people had perceived God for centuries on its head. Jesus introduced the concept that he came to fulfill the whole entire Old Testament law, thus exposing us to the idea that the rest of us cannot keep the Old Testament law. All of us are too broken, we're too rebellious, that in our natures we're continually running away from God instead of toward him. And about halfway through the sermon, Jesus makes a summarizing statement. And he says this in Matthew chapter 5, before, 548, before he moves on to the rest of the sermon. He says this, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And though I, I didn't really realize it at first, these two passages are, are interlinked in a way that, that I, I didn't even see this before. And it all comes down to the word that Jesus uses when he commands people to be perfect, as the Father is perfect, knowing that we can't be perfect apart from him and the, the spirit working in us. And that word he uses there is the Greek word teleos. Telios. And, and this is a crucial word for us today. You're going to hear me say it about a hundred times probably, teleos. And we're going to spend a significant amount of time talking about it and thinking through how our entire passage kind of hinges on this one word. This one single word helps us move from seeing James 3 as an ethical suggestion or, or a best practice for a living life. Uh, to uh, really getting to, to be more like Christ. It, it brings it back to Jesus and the fact that we cannot live this life apart from him. How this life of walking with Jesus is completely about growing more and more like him and in love with him. We can't please God. We can't be right with God no matter how hard we try unless we rely on him, we trust in him and let him rule our hearts. So this word, teleos, it's a complex word. There's no real one-to-one -one in the English. There's no apples-to-apples -apples comparison. Instead, it's used in, in, in many different places across the New Testament and often translated to different words to, depending on, on the context. And uh, here, here are a couple of the defining terms, the way, the way in English we would define it as have something having reached its end or something being complete, completion. And by extension, the, uh, perfect in the sense of complete in all its parts or perfect in the sense of being fully grown to maturity or, or perfect in the sense that especially in relation to the completeness of Christian character. And uh, when Jesus uses this word, he's, he's commanding us to be perfect like our Father is he in heaven is perfect. And when he says that, it's not just a moral righteous standard. He's not just saying be good like God's good or righteous like God is righteous. Jesus is talking about something significantly deeper. He's talking about being perfect, sure, as, as in the sense that God is righteous, but he's, he's referring to the Godhead's unified purpose in themselves, the undivided purpose amongst all three persons of the Trinity. Jesus talking about the completeness of character. 
There's no lack in any way, on any level in God. We're going to see this in our passage this morning. And today we find it in verse 2 of our passage. James 3.2 says, For we all stumble in many ways. We know that. That's true, right? We all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is mature. Teleos. He is mature. Able also to control the whole body. It's crucial that we understand this concept this morning uh, because we're going to dig into the passage and extract the implications of this word from the passage and how it really kind of shades everything we read after that. But before we go on and explore that, I want to just take a minute and, and, and ensure that we understand from a biblical context what we're talking about. So let's look at a few passages where, uh, where this is used across the New Testament. We just talked about Matthew 5.48, but... Matthew 19, Jesus is talking to the rich young man, the rich, or the rich young ruler, however you want to say that, and he's talking about how to be right with God. And he says, you must follow the commandments, and the, and the man's pretty audacious. He says, I have done that from my birth. I followed ritually everything I'm supposed to do. And, and Jesus says this to him in, in Matthew 19, 21, if you want to be perfect, teleos, if you want to be perfect, Jesus said to him, go, sell your belongings and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. There, right there, that word teleos is translated perfect this time. Not mature, but perfect. And he's talking about being completely right before God. Romans chapter 12, Paul uses it. One of many places Paul uses it. Romans 12, 2 says this, Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, the perfect teleos, will of God. Here, Paul's not talking about moral rightness, but God's, God's will being perfect in the sense of, of it being totally sufficient for us. That it, it is what's necessary. It's what's best. It's sufficient. Let's look at two other places, and then we'll move on. Verses, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. Paul again writes, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints in the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity, teleos, with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Here it's, it's a little different, which is helpful because that helps give a, a fuller picture for us. Uh, but here Paul uses the very same word to talk about being completely mature as a follower of Jesus. And he's, he's talking about being whole, being a whole person. And, and don't miss this. Paul's not writing to an individual here. He's talking to a, a family of faith, a community, a church, a local church. And he's saying this to them to, collectively, that these roles, apostles and pastors and, and, and evangelists and, and prophets and teachers, uh, that all of these roles are a gift, that these are not people who go and do long ranger kind of ministry detached from the local church, but they are a gift to the local church, to equip the local church, to invest in the local church so that the church together grows to maturity, completeness, and wholeness together as a, as a body of Christ. So it's not even about individual maturity. It's about a unified maturity of the whole community. And here's our last reference, 1 Corinthians 2, 2-6. to In light of those passages, this is probably the best usage as it relates to James. Uh, Verse 2, 2 to 6 of 1 Corinthians 2 says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and much trembling. 
my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a wisdom among the mature, the teleos, but not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Now that we've seen a few other places where this word's used, we get a better understanding of what Paul's talking about. And he's talking about being fully grown in your relationship with Christ. To, to those who aren't just educated in their intellect of this is what it means to follow Jesus, and I have it up here and I know it, but those who have merged together that intellect and that understanding of what it means to follow Jesus with, with character, with life practice. And that's what he's referring to. So let's look back to James 3. Let's look back at our passage. And let's read together from the beginning of our passage again. Verses 1 and 2. It says, Not many then should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we will receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is mature, able to control the whole body. What God is calling us to is to be mature in the way we've been seeing across the New Testament. And we're meant to pursue being a people who are unified in our hearts together, in our minds together. A people who are unified in our desires to pursue Jesus together. And who have one purpose in being more like Christ, both as individuals and as a community. And we misunderstand the deeper point of this passage if we fail to see this. If we read this on the surface as just another exercise for how I can live a happier life, how I can avoid being in trouble, how I can look a little better, present a better picture, have some best practices, we miss the whole point. The pursuit of being disciplined with our tongues, with our speech, is the pursuit of reflecting Jesus to our culture, to the people around us, back to God first and foremost. Our, our family occasionally likes to go and check out our local museums in the area. Uh, we, we enjoy Kelvin Grove. We, we had a good time going after the Burrell Collection opened back up, going and just going looking around, taking a wander, and, and just spending time there. But there's a difference in the way that some of our family members like to experience these, these places. Dean and I really like to take our time in the spaces that have the paintings, especially those big, huge, old paintings. And we would like to just to, just to admire them and, and to, to look at the details of them and look at the brush strokes. Man, can you believe that somebody actually stood in front of this huge thing and was painting it? Look at the detail work on it. My kids, on the other hand, run up. That's great. Let's move on. You know, and the two totally different experiences. They recognize that's beautiful, but I want to go see the suits of armor now. I want to go see the fossils. I want to go see something else that's cool, and those things are cool. And we're no we're no experts by any means, but we enjoy standing there and admiring the beauty of those things. And we come away with two different kind of experiences. Uh, most often, the we, we're ready to linger a little longer than the kids are. And, uh, and today, if we're not careful, this is exactly what we can do with this passage. We can read these words, say, yeah, I need to be disciplined with my speech, and then we move on, and, and we kind of leave it behind, not really internalizing it. But brothers and sisters, the way that you and I speak, the language we use, the tone in which we communicate that language, they all serve as a means to indicate your maturity and my maturity in Christ. All of those things together. They speak to how, to what extent, or even if 
You're demonstrating your faith, like we heard Andrew preach on last week. Am I walking out my faith? Tone, language, vocabulary, all of those things, talk of it, reflect those things. So we can't afford to look, overlook this. So where do we turn to? Well, we turn to Christ. Jesus is our model in this, as always. That's our second big point today. Jesus is our model on how to do this. And we see this really in four ways. The first one is that Jesus is really gracious in his words to others. Secondly, we're going to see that Jesus and how, he's, how he spoke the truth in those important moments, even when it wasn't popular, and, and how Jesus acknowledged those moments when it was better to even say nothing. And then we're going to look at how he was able to do these things because he spent time, the time that was needed with the Father in cultivating that intimacy, really hiding the word in his heart. First, we see that Jesus was extremely gracious with others. He was, he was patient. And we see this throughout the gospel accounts uh, and, and that how he would, he would labor with his disciples. I love this, that he would often teach publicly and then privately the disciples would come to him and they wouldn't understand and they would want him to, re, uh, once again, hey, will you, will you re-explain that to us? And he would patiently explain things to them. He would, he would labor with them, walk with them, journey with them. Um, he was compassionate. On many occasions, we see, in the, we see this in how he spoke to those who were out, the outcast or, or those who, who weren't the cultural insider, but, but those standing on the outside, the, those who were not popular, the ones who were broken. And one of the most vivid illustrations of Jesus' use of gracious words was in a moment when he would have been justified to use strong language instead of compassionate language. Let's look at John chapter 21. A couple of weeks ago at, uh, at the men's night, we were, we were looking at a few points along Peter's journey with Christ, and we had broken up into tables. And, and this was the, the passage that my, my group at my table was assigned to look at, and it's been on my mind ever, ever since that night. And In John 21, Jesus has been crucified. He's come back. He's resurrected. And we've seen him appear two other times to the disciples. But this is the first interaction that the twelve that with the twelve that's detailed for us that we we see explicitly the conversation, and the night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter follows closely behind Jesus as he's taken into custody. He follows him all the way to where he's being put on trial before the religious leaders, and he's observing from afar. And while he's observing, multiple people recognize Peter as having been with Jesus or being a follower of Jesus. One even is related to the guy Peter cut his ear off and is recognized. He's like, weren't you there? And each time, Peter denies it. He, he, he betrays Jesus. And on the last time, Luke twenty two sixty one 61 tells us that as soon as Peter, the words left Peter's mouth, denying Jesus, that Jesus from, a, from across the area turned and they met, they locked eyes. How devastating, can you imagine? Devastating. We talked about, man, I would hate for my worst ever thing mess up just to be recorded in Scripture for all of time. I would hate that. But how can you imagine how devastating this would have been for both of these men? For Peter, knowing the massive failure in that moment, just right before Jesus' eyes, to lock eyes with him. But for Christ to recognize all my other disciples ran, here's, here's Peter standing there, present with me, and I've just heard him deny me. I am all along, after all. So fast forward from this moment to John 21, and we see Jesus meet Peter, who blatantly betrayed Jesus the last time we saw him together. And so let's read these few verses. John 21, verse 15 says, When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him. 
you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And after saying this, he told him, follow me. That invitation of acceptance belonging there. Jesus could have said a lot of things. He could have been angry. It would have been right to be angry with him. He would have been right to scold him, to be stern with him. But he doesn't. He meets him with compassion, forgiveness, belonging. He doesn't hold the betrayal over Peter's head. He says, again, that invitation, come follow me. Wow, Jesus is incredibly gracious. He, he builds up. His words comfort. They're saturated with love. They offer belonging. But what about us? I couldn't help but think, what about when I'm wronged, when you're wronged? How do we respond? How, when we recoil away from, from that, how, how do we respond? When we're victimized, what's our, tongue, our tone like? When someone accuses us falsely or, or does something that we've, we feel like, man, just gets right under my skin, how do I respond? How do you respond in those moments? As we see in John 21, how Jesus' words will overflow with grace. And I couldn't help but think of so often my words and my tone are the opposite of that. Are, are we gentle? Are we compassionate? Secondly, Jesus knew how to recognize the important moments when it was necessary to speak truth, even uh, when it was hard to speak truth. And, and then he follows through with not just recognizing the moment, but actually speaking the truth. And, and think about Jesus' final hours before he goes to the cross. He's brought in before the Sanhedrin, the council of the religious leaders there. They hold a sham of a trial to try to convict Jesus of saying something, anything that would allow them to kill him. Look at Luke 22, 66 through 70. It says this, When daylight came, the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the scribes, convened and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They said, If you are the Messiah, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Wow. And they all asked, Are you then the Son of God? And he said to them, You say that I am. Mark 14 gives us another kind of camera angle on this encounter. And Mark records part of the conversation in Mark 14, 61. He says, again, the high priest questioned him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? 62, I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus spoke truth in this moment, knowing it was going to be costly for him. Knowing that it was going to cost him his life, even. But he doesn't evade. He doesn't sugarcoat. He speaks plainly to them. Jesus does the same with, with Pilate, Rome's regional ruler over Judea. He's brought in before Pilate in John 19, verse 10. And, and Pilate questions Jesus. Verse 10 says, So Pilate said to him, Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you or the authority to crucify you? Verse 11, Jesus responds by saying, You would have no authority 
<laughs> you would have no authority over me at all if it hadn't been given to you from above. This is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. Wow. Jesus speaks uh, not gentle truth, but some really hard truth, unpopular truth, to arguably the most powerful man in the region. What about you and me? Do you have this under control? When your colleagues at work ask you about what your life's like, your family member asks you about what you believe, do you divert to another subject? Do you avoid it? Do you share parts that are, you know will line up with what they believe and never actually get to the parts you know that are in conflict? And it's okay to start there, but do we ever actually get to the parts of the full truth of the gospel? Truly loving others means, man, I, I'm willing to say the hard things to people in compassion, in love. Not in harshness, but in love. Jesus was gracious. He was courageous enough to speak the truth in hard moments. Thirdly, he also remained silent in moments where it was more important for him to do that, when it was better to say nothing. During that same night we just read about, Pilate doesn't know what to do with Jesus, so he, he learns Jesus is from Galilee, so he sends him to the guy who's in charge of Galilee, to King Herod. And so he brings him before Herod, and we, this encounter's recorded in, in Luke 23, in verse 7, says, Finding that he was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem during those days. Herod was very glad to see Jesus. For a long time, he'd wanted to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some miracle performed by him. Verse 9, so he kept on asking questions, but Jesus did not answer him. Now, who knows why Jesus chose not to respond in this moment? Was it because this was the man who had killed his cousin, John the Baptist, for seeming no reason at all? And he just knew it would be better for him not to say anything at all than to be tempted and to, to possibly give in to that temptation. So Jesus never going to give in to temptation. He remained silent. I don't know. Uh, was it because Herod was looking for a spectacle? Verse 8 says that. He wanted to see some miracle performed. We, we have no way to know this. But what we can take away from this is that Jesus was very intentionally silent before Herod. And he had just been really explicit with Pilate right before this. He just revealed who he was to the Sanhedrin before that. But before Herod, he says nothing. Jesus knew when to remain silent. I don't know about you, but this is something I continually to seek to grow in. Man, for moments I can take back when I wasn't silent. I wish I could have been. wish I would have been. Uh, I've spent years praying over that tendency in my life, continue to pray over that tendency in my life. And maybe you're the same way as me in that. Uh, growing into that teleos, Maturity means growing in our ability to know when to speak and when not to speak. Lastly, when Jesus did speak, his words were saturated with God's word. That's what came out when he was squeezed. God's word did. You see this in his temptation in the wilderness in Matthew 4. When, when Satan meets him, how does he respond? This is what the word, word of the Lord says. This is what scripture says. Don't you know this is what God says? Repeatedly, when Jesus is faced with temptation, he responds with Scripture. Dr. Don Whitney, in his book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, talks about how to pray through the Scriptures. And he discusses the benefits of this and, and how praying Scripture is one way that helps us to memorize Scripture. I heard Dr. Whitney teach on this, and in describing this habit, he, he spoke about how Jesus did this and how you see Jesus doing this on the cross even. How when in his most excruciating moments... Some of, some of the words we, we get from, from those last seven statements, two of them are, are Scripture from the Psalms. Psalm 22, 22.1 says, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? 
Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my, my words of my groaning? Even in his grief, even in his anguish, what's, what's coming out of him? It's not cursing God. It's, it's scripture that's coming out. You, you skip over a little bit in Psalm 31, 5 says, Into your hand I commit or entrust my spirit. You have redeemed me, Lord God of truth. That sounds familiar, right? In his most excruciating trying moments, when he's suffering unimaginably, where does Jesus turn to? Where do, where do his thoughts go to? What's coming out of him? He turns to what he's already hidden in his heart, Scripture. And this is what comes out of him when he's pressed and squeezed. And what about us? What comes out in those moments of difficulty? Um, when we're feeling the, that pressure, when we're squeezed, what comes out? What kind of speech comes out? What kind of tone are we using? Is it Scripture? Is it compassion? Is it cursing? It's, it's worth noting that when Peter's denying Jesus, the way Peter tries to prove to others that he's not actually a follower of Jesus, finally, the last time when they leave him alone, is because he swears at them. He curses at them. Your language tells the story of your character. Your tone tells the story of your character. How you treat your family, not just what you say, but how you say it. Man, that's been so convicting this week <laughs> to think about that. Oh, we have to let Jesus be our guide in this. Growing in maturity means being like him, emulating him. It means putting God's word in us so that it is what comes out of us. Lastly, this morning, the key to all of this is intimacy with God. Because saying that and actually doing that are, are two different things. And, and growing into this teleos maturity doesn't come overnight. It's a slow, steady process. We want it to be quick. We, man, we, want, we want to grow and to be more like Jesus and to flip a switch and it just happen. But it's a slow grind, a day in, day out of pursuing Jesus. Teleos maturity is our aim as we walk step-by-step step in relationship with Jesus. It's meant to be this consistent journey of the ups and the downs drawing us near to God, us leaning in, us being more dependent, us trusting in Him. The main way we achieve this is through long-term, ever-increasing intimacy with God. It's not through our effort. You can't just make this happen. In fact, verse 8 says that. We, said that. we saw that in James 8. Verse 8 says, James 3, 8 says, but no one can tame the tongue. No one can. It's the reason we need Christ in us, helping us through His Spirit. You and I can't do this on our own. And James uses a few different word pictures here to help us see this. In verse 3, James uses the illustration of the horse. In verse 4, he references the rudder of a ship. This is what he says. Now, if we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we direct their whole bodies. And consider ships, though very large and driven by fierce winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So too, though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. In both cases, he's calling back to something very small that controls something much larger. He's saying that if you and I can control our tongues, we will have mastery not over just one sliver, but our, our whole life. I, I love what one commentator I came across this week says. He, uh, he wrote, It is as though all the wickedness in the whole world were wrapped up in that little piece of flesh. There are few sins people commit in which the tongue is not involved. It's like, man, that is so true. So true. It has the power to control. But in the rest of verse 5 and through verse 6, we see that it has the power to destroy as well, like, like a raging wildfire. He says there in the last half of 5, Consider how a small fire sets ablaze a large forest. 
And the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among our members. It stains the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. When I was a teenager, I remember helping clear off some, some land that a family member owned. And, and to do that, we were going to utilize a controlled burn. Now, we, we had put everything in place for, the, for it to be safe. We had all the right equipment. We had contacted the local fire brigade. They even sent us out someone to oversee the, 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 the day to make sure we were doing everything as we needed to do. And uh, right as the fire was lit, the wind picked up. I mean, instantly the wind picked up. And what started off as this small little blaze that was going to kind of gently and slowly spread across this large area, just, I mean, it began to just rage to the point that we all kind of scattered and went running, those who were, who were working. The smoke became blinding. It was burning our eyes. It was burning our lungs. We, we all had to run for cover. And in just a few seconds, flames engulfed the whole entire area that was supposed to take several minutes to burn. Like that wildfire, our tongues can get out of control pretty fast before we even realize it. They can, it can destroy and tear others down in an instant. So how do you fight that? How do you fight that tendency to lash out or to say things without thinking or to use a tone that's, that's harsh and, and, and tear, that tears people down? Well, you fight it through heart, chain, through heart change, which only comes through God working in you. The best way to cultivate this is time spent with God in his word and in prayer. Surprise, surprise. This is not revolutionary. We talk about this almost every single week because it's the truth. Time with the Father changes you. Putting God's word in your heart changes you. It changes your thought patterns, changes your behavior. This week, we were so blessed to have the Quest team from New England here volunteering with us. And a few mornings, we, we took time and spent time talking about kind of the foundational, fundamental things of the Christian life. And, and the very first thing we talked about with them was the importance of spending time with the Father, growing, cultivating intimacy with God. We talked about how our doing needs to flow out of our being and who we are in Christ, that who we are in Christ should then flow into who, who, uh, what we do. We want to flip it on the other side. And we've talked about that many times on, on Sunday mornings together. Uh, we talked about from John chapter 15 that, that there's this foundation here, how, how Jesus says that he's the vine and we're the branches, that we can do nothing apart from Christ. How Jesus calls us to be fruitful, but then says we can't produce fruit without him. How, how we have to stay connected to him to, to be able to produce fruit. Well, the same lesson applies to this fight with our tongue, our speech. The things we say reveal our hearts. Untamed speech reveals a lack of maturity. And a habit of untamed speech even hinders our maturity in Christ. An untamed tongue hinders fruitfulness that we're called to pursue in Christ. You and I can't be like Jesus before others if we're careless with our speech, if we're unwilling to seek discipline in this area. And the only way for you and for me to see lasting change in this area is to pursue intimacy with God. There's no shortcut to it. So this morning, we close by considering that this exercise of seeking after the heart of God, by becoming more and more disciplined in our speech, that it's simply an extension of what we saw last week, of walking out our faith, of putting our faith on display in our actions. It's just another step along the way. It's not a separate whole page. It's not a separate checklist. This is a continuation of that. 
Therefore, it should be unthinkable to us that both blessings and cursings come out of the same mouth. James closes the passage by writing this, verse 10. Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be the same. It should not be this way. Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree produce olives? My brothers and sisters, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a saltwater spring yield fresh water. We talked a lot about that word, teleos, completeness, unity, maturity. When blessing and cursing come from the same mouth, this is the epitome of, of the opposite of what we just talked about. It, it describes a divided heart, one that's, that's not unified, one that's not perfected, not mature. Dean and I grew up in the southern part of the U.S. Go back to that map back there. It's the very bottom near, near the ocean. And uh, it, it was not uncommon to, for, in my childhood to find myself swimming in bodies of water that was brackish. Now, if you don't know that term, it's, it, it's, it's, this, uh, it's an area where, of water where there's salt and fresh water mixing together. And it happens near the, the coast, near the ocean all the time, where, where bodies of fresh water spill into the ocean. And, and, and you get this, this, uh, this crazy kind of strange mix of water. And, and it, it's really a bizarre thing if you've ever been in it. Because you get it in your mouth, and it doesn't really taste bad like salt water does, but it doesn't really taste good either. It's this, this weird phenomenon. Uh, and, and it can seem safe to drink, especially if it's just kind of mixing in. There's not a lot of salt content. But over time, you continue to drink it, even though it seems safe. It makes you very sick. It makes you very unwell. If left exposed, metal objects, even though they seem safe around this, can rust and be destroyed. It's destructive, even though it seems harmless. You're connecting this morning. That's the way our tongues can be. It's just harmless part of my life. If we're not careful, the same is true. Don't justify, don't justify an undisciplined tongue by saying, everyone speaks that way at my work. Everyone speaks that way when we're doing this. Everyone speaks that way on the football pitch. Everyone speaks that way when they're driving and you get cut off. Or when your child embarrasses you in public. Thank you for that this morning, by the way. Or when someone else gets a little aggressive with you. That's how you respond to people. Don't justify using coarse language with others. Don't fall into the trap of thinking it's okay to use certain language in certain settings, the church setting, the Christian setting, and then slipping into using another whole set of vocabulary or another tone somewhere else. We, we actually live out that absurd description that James makes there in verse 11 of that tap, that spring that produces bitter and sweet water when we do that. We can present godly language in certain, certain settings and then get into other settings and, and, and divert to other humor and other speech and other language. We shouldn't have separate vocabularies. Don't forget that you have the ability to produce fruit as much by what you say as by what you don't say. Intimacy with God should be changing our hearts and the content of our speech. The final thing this morning before we wrap up. This is about reflecting teleos, that wholeness, that maturity, that unity and in our pursuit of God. And we can't forget that it's also about portraying Jesus to the world around us. You and I are a picture of Christ to our friends, to our families. They see us before they ever many times will see the word of Christ. They see us, the picture of Christ. They hear us and what we say and how we say it. That's, that's what we portray to others. We're meant to glorify God before others. Being a reliable witness 
It starts with our character. Before people ever believe what, what we have to say about who Jesus is, they look at our lives first. It's much about what you preached last week, Andrew. We're called to a high standard in this area. And that's why James uses this word of all words to describe the one who's disciplined in this area. It's why, there's a, it's, it's why that very first sentence says there will be a stricter judgment for those who, who teach because there's a higher standard on what you say in your life. Is our lifestyle aligned with what we present our teaching? So this morning, uh, it would be pointless if this were just an exercise in manners. It would be pointless if, this were, if I were just to say, hey, here's a great suggestion for your life, a best practice, or to a good ethical stance to take. This is just one more aspect of seeking after what is most satisfying in this life, and that's knowing and walking with Jesus. And today, if you're here and you've never believed Jesus as the way to be right with God, if you've never made him the Lord, the king of your life, I want to tell you that there's nothing else that there's nothing else that can compare to that in this world. There's nothing else in this world worth pursuing. Nothing better, nothing more hopeful, nothing more joyful than knowing Jesus. If you're hearing me say that this morning and you feel a longing to know more, we would love to talk to you after the service. We would love to pray with you. Entering into that kind of joy and hope isn't complicated. It's really easy. It doesn't take a lot of rituals or any rituals. It's, it's really simple, and we would love to tell you about that. This morning, we're going to respond in two ways, through song and through the table. Um, this morning, as we turn to this, and if you're a follower of Jesus today, and you do profess faith in Christ and have made him the Lord of your life, we, we invite you to partake in this. And Jesus paid the price for you and me to have purpose, to have wholeness, to have maturity, to teleos, and that's his desire for us. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, before all those things we read about, he sat around a table with his disciples and he broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And at the end of the meal, he held up the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. So today, as we partake these elements, we long to be perfect as our father in heaven is perfect. The way we do that is reminding our hearts that Jesus has already done that for us. So today, let's walk in that. Let's celebrate that. Let's embrace that and pursue that. Father, we, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for moments that it impacts us, that it challenges us. Lord, I pray that you would purify us in this way, that you would make us a people whose speech reflects who you are, that you would make us a people who have, of great character, that reflects your character, that you would help us to be fully mature, to help us to be the people you are, you are using in this place to be an accurate picture of who you are and of your gospel. So come do that work in us today, in Jesus' name.